Up next, Biz 503, the Portland-centric podcast for startups and small businesses. We believe it, we live it, and there's something about Brand Portland that has taken a meteoric rise in our world. Welcome to Biz 503, the Portland startup and small business podcast from Portland Radio Project. I'm Dave Barcos, founder of the Bridge Incubator in Vancouver, Washington, here with Dottie Scott, owner of Premium Websites, LLC, and host of Ask Dottie here on PRP. Hey, Dave. Portland is home to a dozen or so indie and art movie theaters, and they occupy a special niche in their communities. This week, we're talking about three of them, their histories, their transformations, and what they offer in addition to being great places to see great films. Lonnie Jo Lee is the owner of the Clinton Street Theater in Southeast Portland. Lonnie Jo, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Doug White is the executive director of the Hollywood Theater on Northeast Sandy and 41st. Thanks for being here, Doug. Thanks for having me. And we're joined by two guests from the Academy Theater in Montevilla. Dana Drips is the theater's general manager, and Julie Stewart is co-owner. Hello. Hey, thanks for having us. So Lonnie Joe, you acquired the Clinton in 2012. Uh, it was pushing about 100 years old. I said, how did you decide that it was something you wanted to tackle? Um, well, I've been um, looking for work. I had a computer business when we lived in New York. And being over 50, I turned invisible, and it was really difficult, even though I'd been a vice president of a company and managed lots of people and stuff. So um, I love movies, and I started going to Northwest Film Center for um, film classes and was in their certificate program. And then when I saw the movie come up for sale on Craigslist, I don't know, it just like, I want that. (laughs) So it was pretty much that. And then, of course, he was asking way too much money because the place was a real wreck when we looked at it. Um, But my husband's very kind, and so he let us take a mortgage out on our house and pay for it. And um, I'd also tried to submit films to... uh, film festivals. And a lot of the film industry is very male-centric, both in the way movies are made and produced and even screened. A lot of film festivals are like that, too. So I was in one documentary film festival, but I had a really bad experience with another one. So I wanted to make sure that I had a place where a lot of independent voices could be heard, especially women. And um, yeah, it just became a passion for me. That's amazing. So you started out really without a film background. And through the center, you started finding out that that was where your passion lies. Yeah, I started taking classes. I made a few feature-length documentaries. Uh, it was just kind of there. And, I mean, I'd always been a huge film buff. And, you know, back in the 70s, there were great art films and great American directors. And so I watched lots and lots and lots and lots of movies. I'd always loved that. But I had no idea that I really wanted to express my own creativity or storytelling through that medium. So, yeah, it was kind of a shock to me because, you know, I'm 64 now and it's like uh, I should be retired and I'm not. (laughs) It's a it's more than a full time job and it is a labor of love. I don't take any salary for the theater. Uh, My husband, he has a real job and he nine to five job. And so he pays our bills. And so everything I make goes back into the theater because we had to do tons of work on it when I bought it. It was a real mess. It was in real disrepair. Oh, yeah. It had been neglected for a long time, and we had 
possums that lived in the theater. <laughs> and we had, it, we had leaks. We had, it was, it was trashed. Oh my goodness. It was so filthy. There was a huge hole in one of the bathrooms and it was just covered with duct tape. And when we pulled the duct tape off, there was no subfloor. It was just like, there was lots and lots that there was a rip in the screen. There was, you know, horrible equipment. We had one working speaker, <laughs> which you really can't have for a movie theater. So I just had to keep investing in little by little. We've got a really, really nice place now. Yeah, that's wonderful. I love Portland is such an art centric town and, and we love this. I grew up in uh, in the Bay Area and we had a local uh, independent theater uh, on University Avenue. We used to go down all the time. And I remember it wasn't crowded. It was, you know, just a great core audience that would show up for, you know, not the latest releases. It was amazing. And I think that culture, just Portland, I think you fit right into the culture because of that. That's amazing. Um, what else do you think is, is really kind of unique about the Clinton that pulls people to it? Well, I don't ever show like a movie for a week. I mean, I'm not one of those kind of theaters. I don't just book and keep things booked. And I, so I do lots and lots of one night screenings and I work with a ton of nonprofits in town and I give them, you know, reduced to no rates for showing their film. They can have fundraisers. So I have really good connections with a lot of great people and organizations doing really great work. Um, we have a monthly screening every month with KBU Community Radio. We have a monthly screening with the German Film Festival. We do this coming uh, week, we're showing at the River I Stand about the public sanitation workers strike, and it's for a local service employees union. So because I'm not, you know, a nonprofit, I call myself a no-profit, basically, that <laughs> um, I can do a lot more things than um, people who have boards telling them kind of what to do can do, so which, is, which I really love because now at my age, I don't want people telling me what to do. I just want to do my own thing. And I can be as progressive as I like. I can hold, you know, a Bernie Sanders, you know, fundraiser if I want to. I don't, I can be political. I can be, we had a screening last week about the cannabis industry and women in the cannabis industry. I could do that. Some other places can't because, you know, frown on that sort of thing. So I think the other thing that makes us really unique is I really want to partner with people. And I don't want to, I feel like I'm a steward of the theater, not that it's mine. You know, I really want people to feel like they have the ability to participate and make it what they want to be, you know, so that they're just part of the family, the Clinton Street Theater family, and they just treat it with respect and they love it. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think speaking of family, I think you probably have a family following for one of the longer term commitments that you've done which is going on 40 years of showing the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's right. Yes. <laughs> when we first bought the theater, I went to a couple of the Rocky shows, and it was like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe they do this every week because it seemed really crazy to me. I mean, again, it's probably my age, and I, I remember seeing it once, you know, back in 75 when it came out, and I didn't think I could keep it up. I mean, also, it starts at midnight. It's Saturday. And so it kind of spoils the whole weekend for anything else. But after we started showing it and we were there, um, my husband helps me out. He runs the 35 millimeter. And so uh, I don't know, I just got to know the people involved in Rocky. We have a shadow cast. It's also been around for over 30 years. And um, I had so many people that I talked to that had always felt out of place. They they were, you know, bullied at school. They were cutters. They were depressed. They were 
just all kinds of issues. And they came to Rocky and they found acceptance. A lot of kids still today have trouble with their sexuality and feeling comfortable. Um, a lot of trans kids too, especially. And Rocky's a, a safe and secure place for people to try on new things, you know, like try on those fishnets <laughs> if you want to, or a bustier or, you know, but just play with their own sexuality. And, and it really does save them. I mean, people have told me Rocky Horror has saved my life and I totally believe it. So it's, even though it was very hard to get used to in the beginning, I would never, ever stop having Rocky Horror ever. As long as I'm the owner, we will have Rocky Horror Picture Show every single Saturday night, no matter the cost <laughs> to us yeah. physically or That's amazing. It really is. And, it's, and it is an experience. It's beyond a movie. I applaud you for doing it. It's amazing. Um, I've been one or two times, and, and I'm always a chant behind because I don't know the lines. They change. <laughs> they change all the time, right? depending right. on the political situation. I did get hit by a couple pieces of toast, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Are there any other kind of logistical challenges that go along with playing a movie for that long? Oh, um, 20th Century Fox was really great. Like the first year that we had owned the theater, they sent us a brand new print. So it's really great that I don't have to worry about that. I, when I was first owning the theater, I thought it would might be a problem because we don't have DCP, that new expensive digital um, projection. I do play a lot of uh, digital files. That's what we get from most of our um independent filmmakers, you know, through Dropbox or other file sharing kind of things, or I can play Blu-ray, but I couldn't afford at all to do the DCP. And Fox says DCP or 35 only. And I was afraid, oh my goodness, the print's going to go away. And, but they sent me a brand new print. And when that was the 40th anniversary of Rocky and the opening of Rocky in 2015, we actually got this really great you know, 40th anniversary poster from 20th Century Fox. And Lou Adler even sent us a personal note thanking us for all our year's service to um, Rocky Horse. And he's a producer. He's a big name producer. So it was kind of nice that we got recognized in a small way that we've had this dedication to that film for all of this time. Oh, that's great. That's great. Lonnie Joe, thank you so much. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Dottie and Doug White are going to talk shop about the Hollywood Theater. Support for Biz503 comes from Premium Websites, offering website and social media marketing to startups and small businesses. For more, go to premiumwebsites.net. Welcome back to Biz503. I am Dottie Scott. In this segment, Doug White joins us from the Hollywood Theater, where he is the executive director. So, Doug, how does being run as a nonprofit work to the Hollywood's advantage? Well, I think uh, in a number of ways. First and foremost, we can get uh, donations and grants, you know, to help support what we're doing. So that's a big advantage when it comes to raising funds and revenue to keep the historic building um, around and to do all the interesting programming that we do. So that's a big part of it. Secondly, um, I mean, there's no owner, so any profit that does happen, if there is profit, just goes right back into the organization. Um, and it's also run by a board of directors, which are all volunteers, so it's more like has all this community input in the direction of where the organization uh, and the theater is going. So I think there's a lot of ways that it makes it a more um, interesting and community-responsive uh, organization that way. Awesome. Did the uh, new marquee that went up in 2013 change anything for the th- theater? Did it signify anything for you? 
For sure, yeah. And we definitely we did that on purpose, sort of. We were making some internal changes to programming, and we put new seats in. Um, and then, you know, kind of the most obvious thing for a movie theater is the marquee. And we kind of wanted to put our stamp on the outside saying like, hey, things have changed here. There's some interesting things going on. Come by and check it out. And the new beautiful marquee definitely accomplished that where everybody was kind of taking notice and maybe stopping by if they hadn't been by in years. Great. Um, the Hollywood introduced uh, 70 millimeter in 2015. Uh, what are some logistical challenges that come along with that format these days? And what's the Hollywoods uh, doing to adapt? Well, for sure. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore, right? Other than like, I mean, there's the parts aren't made anymore. So thankfully, the 35 millimeter film projectors we had could be converted to 70. So it took us, I don't know, maybe a good six to eight months just to track down the parts. Uh, then we did a community fundraiser to get all the money to be able to do that. And we did raise the money that was necessary. Um, now going forward, it's also just having the technicians to be able to fix it or, you know, um, find new parts or do whatever we need to have happen. We've actually had to go to a machine shop before to make a part for us that we couldn't find. Um, we work with uh, Northwest Projection. Joel Miller uh, is our technician, and he's probably one of the best in the country. So it's been great having him on board and really kind of taking the lead on making sure that we're able to continue to project 70 millimeter. So has the 70 millimeter increased the theater's pull with customers? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of become a thing now, which is, you know, if, we sh if we're showing it on 70 millimeter, almost every screening sells out. So audiences definitely react to it. The great thing is, is that it sort of delivers too, right? You kind of all hear what's 70 millimeter this, I heard it's a better format, but then we actually watch it and you see like 2001, a space odyssey in 70 millimeter. Most people do walk out and go, Oh, like now I've seen the movie. I understand what this format is, how much better the, the picture is, how much better the sound is. Um, and so that whole experience, I think, does kind of deliver and has become more of a thing nationwide. I mean, we kind of got in right before um, this happened and we didn't know about Hateful Eight, Tarantino's movie coming out in 70 millimeter. But we had just planned it just in enough time that we already had it up and running. So we're able to get that movie here um, and then do really well with it. And uh, even then, the studios did install 70 millimeter at a lot of theaters across the country for that film, but specifically for that film, specifically for that film. Yeah. And you were already ready. But we so were already we're ready to go. Ahead. Yes. So the, we, we were able to get the booking because we were definitely like, we're ready to go. We already have this, you know, dialed in. So. So how do you decide which films are going to be um, shown in 70 millimeter and which aren't? Well, the decisions, uh, hopefully, we wish they were broader, but there's only so many prints around. So mm -hmm. there is definitely a short list of films that are available to screen in 70. Um, we've shown most of them. There's a few out there, and occasionally we're hoping new films will be struck. But, you know, it's kind of the, the standards like Lawrence of Arabia and Vertigo and um, West Side Story, uh, of course, 2001, which we're going to show. There is a new print of 2001 um, that Christopher Nolan was behind and just had developed that just showed at Cannes. And now we're getting a print of it here for the 50th anniversary. Uh, we're showing it June 1st through the 3rd. So occasionally there's new prints being struck. Um, but there is kind of a, a short list of films that, that we have to choose from. So if our listeners haven't um, experienced 70 millimeter, then June 1st would be a good opportunity. Yeah, it's that whole weekend, June 1st through the 3rd, though I know tickets are already, they, they sell out in advance. So okay. I know I think two of the shows are already sold out. There's five total. So Awesome. Yeah. So the Hollywood acquired Movie Madness, the renowned Portland video store at the beginning of this year. Uh, what kind of overlap is there between the Hollywood and Movie Madness, and how does one influence the other? 
Well, I guess, first of all, the Hollywood Theater is an arts organization. So we run the theater, but at our core, we're a nonprofit arts film organization. We're all fans of Movie Madness. We were customers of Movie Madness. And when we heard that Mike Clark, the owner for 26 years, was going to retire and potentially close the store, we all kind of like were upset because it's this amazing collection of films. There's 84,000 films in this collection. And so we wanted to make sure that it was going to be saved and preserved um, so we approached him and um, talked about us acquiring it and making it part of our nonprofit. It's very different than what we're doing right running a movie theater. Um, it's a whole nother business model. It's across town. Um, but we felt like it fit really well with what we're doing to promote film, to educate and entertain people with film. And, you know, online, you maybe have 20,000 films available between Amazon and Netflix. Mm -hmm. This has 84,000 films, you know, so it's and also like on Netflix and Amazon, Hulu, everything's changing at the whims of distributor contracts. Um, so you never know what's available and when it's available. The, these are physical copies that are in an archive. The, the idea was to save this collection and keep it available to the public. Secondary, we're looking at, okay, let's try and keep this place alive as a store, as a community center, and kind of reinvent it uh, if we can. So are there new films being added to that 84,000? All the time, yeah. I mean, literally every week we're making orders of you know, all the new releases that are coming out from new films to also reissues by Criterion or whoever. So um, it's constantly growing. And that's probably one thing we're struggling with is even the space. We've got a it's a big store, but we are trying mm -hmm. to how do we make space for everything? Because we have DVD, Blu-ray and VHS. Um, and one thing we are going to do to kind of uh, turn the change the business model is create a screening room in Movie Madness. Um, so it's another reason for people to come to the store to check it out um, and then to be able to actually watch films uh, and discuss them uh, in the environment there. Great. So a lot of listeners are probably wondering about the viability of a video store in the age of all the outlets like Netflix and Hulu. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Hollywood plans to keep movie madness relevant going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. We wonder that too, right? It's not like it's not the most obvious business model. Like, hey, it's a great idea. Let's let's run a video store. So it is thinking about that. Like, what can this be? Like I was mentioning a minute ago is so number one is the screening room to, to bring people in for another reason to watch film, discuss film. Um, again, saving this archive and maybe turning it more into a lending library. We're starting to talk to like PSU and their students and other educational organizations. Can we, this is a great resource for students to come in and to be able to learn about film. And also we're going to need uh, support. So with the Movie Madness campaign, we raised $315,000. Then that was to purchase the collection. But now we need support going forward to keep this center alive, you know, as a place for film lovers to get together. So we got a grant from the Miller Foundation to help with that. Um, and going forward, we'll look for members and donors to help keep it alive. Okay. Zooming out a bit, um, how does the airport theater location fit into the Hollywood's plans? Yeah, again, uh, looking at us as a film and arts organization, um, one thing that we really try and support are local filmmakers. So we do a ton of screenings at the Hollywood Theater proper, but we had this idea of, you know, I'd seen um, movie theaters at other airports um, across the world and kind of thought, oh, Portland's got a cool airport. I wonder if they'd consider that here. We approached them and thankfully they were open to the idea. Um, we don't have long international layovers here. So the idea of showing a feature didn't seem right. But we thought, what about local short films, right? So people are waiting, trying to kill 20 minutes. They could watch uh, some short films by local filmmakers. And the feedback the filmmakers get has been really uh, exciting. Great. Well, that's some really great information. When we come back, Dave Barcos talks to Dan and Drips and Julie Stewart from the Academy Theater in Montevilla. 
Support for Biz 503 comes from Premium Websites, offering website and social media marketing to startups and small businesses. For more, go to premiumwebsites.net. Welcome back to Biz 503. In this segment, we're talking with Dan and Drips and Julie Stewart. Dan is a general manager at the Academy Theater in Montevilla, and Julie is one of the theater's co-owners. The Academy closed in the 70s, and there was a major remodel that was in 2006, and then it reopened. Um, tell me a little bit about that remodel process. How was it intentional that we were trying to build an ethos, uh, and what was the goal behind the renovation? Well, when we saw the building, um, my husband and I, similar, we were uh, working I was working part-time, and he found out that he was going to be losing his job. We had just had our second child. So he came home with a great idea. He said, hey, I see a theater is available down the street. Do you want to open a theater? And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm like, okay, yeah, go for it. Go for it. So we walked in the building, and um, it was a printing press. So there was a lot of work to do this building, but it just had such great bones, and it was a beautiful building. I brought somebody in to give me ideas of the colors that I should be putting in the theater. She happens to be a historical architect. And when she saw the building, she flipped out. She said, this building is a very, very rare building. It's part of the Streamline Modern period, not Art Deco. So it was like a four-year period in architecture history. It was all about transportation. You see the, the Streamline campers, and our building looks like a ship. So the front of it, it looks like the bow of the ship, and it has portholes on the top where the marquee is. So at that point, we were like, okay, we're not going to just open this with slapping paint on the wall. We really want to bring it back to its original grandeur. We were very fortunate that the owners from the children of the original owners heard that we were going to be doing this and brought us a lot of pictures of the place. So we had a lot to work from, and then we had, a, um, you know, Stephanie Brown, who did the color, and she? all the colors are original to what that theater would have looked like in its day. Everything, every surface was touched to make it as much of a historical step back in time as it would be if you walked in there in 1947. And when you, when you go in there, you'll see pictures. We have pictures. Um, back in the day, movie theaters were owned by the studios. So we have a um, memory lane, and we have the original telegrams um, from Bob Hope and Bing Crosby's there from the studios wishing the theater owners good luck on their first day opening. Wow. So, yeah, we had a lot to go from, which was really nice. But it turned in from a, hey, let's just open a theater and have a job because we need jobs to, wow, we've really got something here and we really need to pop this place. So I love the story of forced entrepreneurship. Yeah. Everybody's oh, always yeah. looking for a job and oh, jumping yeah. into something it's and like, made something really amazing yeah. out of it, which I applaud you for it. Thank you. Um, when you talk about the culture of that, the ethos that you built there, um, how does that affect the content, right? How does that affect, you know, Academy's position in the community? Uh, and how did that come about? Well, the community was a big part of what we were doing. So at the time when we were opening, it was so fluid at the time. We were like, we're going to do this. No, we can't do this. So oh, we should do this. And money was obviously a huge factor. Um, we really wanted to make it a draw for the community. What was really nice we did most of the work. We did all the deconstruction inside. Um, we painted 10,000 square feet three times. <laughs> and um, it One was... One coat didn't do it, huh? <laughs> no, no. But uh, it was really nice because the neighborhood would stop in. And they were just ecstatic that we were going to be revitalizing this piece of history, but also 
something that would really ground the neighborhood. At the time, Bipartisan Cafe was open. He was over the moon. He said, you know, I was getting ready to close my doors, and you guys come along, <laughs> and you just... It just got people walking the streets again. Um, a big thing was at the time, you know, we had the uh, the metal gates on the doors in front, like the jail doors. Because oh, right. the neighborhood was not what it is today. It was kind a of lot a lot of empty storefronts. Yeah, <laughs> pretty sketchy neighborhood yeah. um, at the time. But it really helped transform it. Really did. And one of the, I remember one of the neighbors said, take the jail doors off. And it would make a big difference. And it really, it really did. It kind of made it more opening and welcome. And um, we've just had an incredible community. Um, we did the Indiegogo campaign to go digital. That was a huge outpouring. And then the community was really touching was they came together, the neighborhood came together. One woman organized a fundraiser outside of us. We didn't have anything to do with it. And they asked to use the theater, and they went around, and they got uh, – we had a silent auction. We had face painters. We had, we had musicians. Live performances. Live performances. Uh, actors. They, it was just like, – it, it was such a cool night. <laughs> it was. And they did it all. The community did it. We didn't have anything to do with it. And it raised – a bunch of money for us to go towards the digital conversion. That's amazing. Yeah, That's amazing. It, was re- it really made us feel like we were a part of the community. Well, you talk about that. You talk about transforming the neighborhood and the transformation to go to digital is Ugh. is a big jump, right? Yes. How does that affect your programming moving forward, your movie selection and, and the way you operate now? Well, I mean, as far as the decision to go digital was not a decision. You know, <laughs> the studios basically said if you want to show movies, you need to convert. We were one of the... I mean, not the last holdouts, but like towards the end, and it was already getting to the point that we couldn't book certain titles because they were only releasing them on digital. And so we didn't really have an option in the situation. But, you know, thanks to a lot of help from the community, we were able to get with the times and and continue to show movies, um, new movies. But we did keep one of our 35 millimeter projectors running. And, you know, if anything, just for nostalgia. But, you know, there there is something great to know that we still have a functioning 35 millimeter in the house. And I mean, I think everybody in this room does. But <laughs> yeah. um, and hopefully the, that's still a driving force for people when they go to movies. Yeah, it is. It's a really different experience. Right. And I think we kind of forget about it with the all the multiplexes and multiple screens and all these choices. We forget that it's just that the purity of experience that when we come back down to a 35 millimeter mm-hmm. um, some, shot of some albums different. just sound better on vinyl. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we talk about the community. It's just been such an important part of what you're doing. How does that affect your plans moving forward? Well, you know, one thing I do want to bring up is that we're first and foremost a second run movie theater. Um, our ticket prices are $4 for adults and $3 for kids and seniors. And that's something we want, to, we want to keep doing for as long as possible. A big part of our community is people who are looking for a cheaper date night, a matinee that's on their budget. And and that's something that we strive to provide for people. So if that means, you know, people wait a little longer to see a movie at our theater, they're fine with that. You well, know, it's, it's a decision we make anymore, right? We decide whether we're going to see it first run. We decide mm-hmm. whether we're going to wait for DVD, yeah. whether we're going to wait for Netflix, or or what, right? We have these different tiers, yeah. yeah. And and you really have a really different experience, and I think that's amazing. And there's yep. certainly been a lot of changes recently, and in, in the way people consume movies. And you know, I feel like people still enjoy seeing movies in the movie theater, and don't necessarily always want to pay fifteen dollars for it. So, <laughs> unless you have like a binge weekend. Right, you could just right, exactly. show up and show movies, you know, <laughs> back to back to back. Uh, one of the unique things that you guys did as part of being, uh, you know, kind of stewards of the community um, is is childcare. 
Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. That was my idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great idea. So at the time, my husband and I had two little kids, and um, there was an old crying room at the theater. Our other partner, Ty, and Hayward was like, oh, yeah, great idea. We'll open a crying room. I was like, who wants to sit in a crying room and watch a movie? Let's do babysitting. It worked out well because our kids were able to grow up in the theater. So they never went to daycare. They hung out, and now they work at the theater, which is kind of cool. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah, that was a big part of just that whole family experience. We really – one of the things when we opened it up, we had two little kids. It was expensive to go out. And so our focus was to make it a family-friendly, affordable spot. That's why the ticket prices are low. The concession prices are low. And to offer the babysitting, just kind of tied it together. Every day at 4, we show a kid's movie. It'll, you'll always be able to bring your kids in at 4 o'clock every day. So our hope was that, okay, mom or dad, who's ever the caretaker, comes in with the kids at 4 and then puts them up in babysitting and the partner comes in and they get to have a date night. So that was the focus of that. And it's worked out really well. We have a lot of, you were saying we have a single mom with twins? Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah, she's, she's a regular. Every weekend. She's a regular customer. A lot of regulars in that yeah. uh, service there. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Guys, uh, Dan and Julie, thank you so much. We could go on a lot longer, but really just thank you. It was so enjoyable to talk to you guys. Thanks thank for having you. us. Thank you very much. That was Dan and Drips and Julie Stewart, who are general manager and co-owner of the Academy Theater in Montevilla. Doug White, the executive director of the Hollywood Theater in Northeast Portland. And at the top of the show, we spoke with Lonnie Jo Lee, owner of the Clinton Theater in Southeast Portland. Biz 503 is produced by Kobe Hutzler with Carl Lucky and edited by Daniel Lin. It's a production of Portland Radio Project. Big thanks to PRP podcast coordinator Nastasha Boyson. And I'm Dottie Scott. And I'm Dave Barkos. Thanks for listening and have an awesome weekend. <laughs>